Welcome to Hitting the Median, a political podcast that aims to be non-partisan, and just like Lyft drivers in New York City. Don't expect us to stand on one side of the road, because we're hitting the median. Alrighty. So we have a very, I guess, controversial. Not really controversial as much. Or is it? I guess it is controversial, but it's also very politically charged. So I, I don't like getting into politically charged episodes so early on, but, you know, here we are, and I wish we had had the time and the uh, ability to cover this a couple weeks earlier when it was more relevant, which is still relevant, but, yeah, so, um, that's, that's coming up, and right now I want to advertise for somebody, a college roommate of mine, his name is James Presley. He owns his own little side business called JP Graphics, and we have a nice shiny logo. I don't know if I'd call it shiny, but we have a nice shiny logo for our podcast, and uh, I paid him to do it, and he's still pretty small time when it comes to to graphic design, but he's really good. So if you can support him, uh, he has a Facebook page, JP Graphics. Go like him on Facebook, and uh, if you need something designed, He's your man. So, Phil, what are we talking about today? All right. Today, we're going to be starting off with the Parkland shooting, and we're going to be talking about basically what that means and what the implications are for that uh, and for the gu- from that for the gun control debate, which always comes up after these type of incidents. Uh, so you want to just give the um, audience a bit of a background. I'm sure most of them have heard. Okay, so officially they're calling this the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, and it occurred at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, which is about 30 miles uh, north of northwest of Fort Lauderdale. So basically Miami area, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, uh, Lauderdale area. And uh, a guy named Nicholas Cruz went in there, with an AR-15 style semi-automatic, multiple small with uh, with uh, multiple small capacity magazines, he activated a fire alarm and students and teachers began pouring into the hallway and he started shooting. So it was pretty sad. Um, and then we're gonna get to this a little bit later and we're gonna come back around and discuss it. But the school resource officer, one of the deputies, he. He came, but he didn't really enter enter the building. So we'll get back to that. There's actually a lot to unpackage here. So, And he's since retired. Resigned and retired as he went under investigation, I believe, correct? I, I believe so. Right. Well, there's another. All right, so I just want to talk a little bit about um, Nicholas Cruz. I guess uh, some things that I've looked into basically just a cursory biography on him i think i believe he was 19 years old he knew and was known in the community had been expelled from the school for undisclosed disciplinary reasons about six months before the shooting he um posted under the handle nicholas cruz on a facebook video and he made a pretty short post he said 
I'm going to be a professional school shooter. The video was flagged. The FBI was contacted. The FBI called the man who posted the video. I think he lived, if I can remember correctly, and he basically told them he didn't know who this was. They should look into it. And the FBI said basically they couldn't, either they couldn't find out who Nicholas Cruz was, although that was his handle, or they didn't take the threat quite seriously enough to act upon it. I guess I'll go into a bit more. Nicholas Cruz, I believe, was called the de the deputies were, I mean, not the deputies, law enforcement was called to, uh, on account of Nicholas Cruz some, over 30 times. He he was known as a loner. He It was a, said by people anecdotally that he used to walk up to people, shake their hands, and tell them that he was going to be a school shooter. He After he did the shooting, um, there's some interviews with some kids where they say that they they were always joking around or kind of commenting on themselves that they believed he that he might be a school shooter. After the shooting took place, he, he dropped his firearm and he left the building, blended in with the crowd, but was found in a neighboring town about an hour later. He had went to a, a Walmart walmart where he went to a subway got a drink and then he had went to a mcdonald's after that and then later he was picked up he i i don't know um really what else there is to add oh i do know that there's no major affiliations as far as ideological motives so not no islamic motives like a isis type thing there's no there was a little bit of rumblings about white nationalism, but nothing came out that was confirmed. He just kind of seems like a loner more in the Dylan Roof angsty type thing than um, than maybe ideological. So, yeah, that's what happened. And one of the things, there's been a lot of um, political, un, uh, what do I want to say? non-civil political discourse about this so there's been a lot of bickering and shouting across both sides over this and so here's what we're gonna do we're gonna cover gun rights and gun control from both sides and we're gonna look at the different statistics and the arguments that both sides are using and then next week is gonna be a very special episode and I'll tell you about that uh, near the conclusion of the episode, what we're doing there. It's going to be a part two of this. And it'll all make sense as we get further toward the end of the episode. So, Bill, what, do, we wanna, do you want to start at gun control or gun rights? I guess I would rather start at gun rights. Okay. No, no, I would rather start at gun control because gun rights is more established and gun control is the, that's the group that's trying to make the change. So I guess I'd rather start at gun control. Okay. So let's start with gun control. All right. So, I mean, I can start off by saying that the two major um, points that the, have been pushed so far are the banning of bump stocks um, there's three things. Banning of bump stocks. Bump stocks are these, uh, I guess there's something that's ad added 
like added onto a gun. I don't know if it's added on. You might know they added onto the magazine or what part of the gun in order to change a semi-automatic um, rifle, which is like an AR-15, to a basically to simulate an automatic rifle. And basically, the difference between a semi-automatic and an automatic. Semi-automatic, you pull the trigger, it fires one round, discharges the case, loads the next round. So you pull, you let up pressure on your finger, and then you pull again to get another bullet firing. Automatic, you pull and you hold, and it just fires until the clip is empty. Yeah. So the, they're gonna, they want to ban the bump stock. Yeah, the bump stock makes it so uh, what you would do is you would hold the gun against your uh, shoulder and... The force of the bump stock, I, I believe it has a spring in it. I could be mistaken. I'm not really a gun expert, and I will never claim to be. <laughs> I, I, I don't own a gun, although I have in the past thought about buying a pistol and getting a pistol permit, permit and everything. But For what reason? Well, my apartment got robbed three times in, in three months a few years ago, and I was a taxi driver, and I've been... People have attempted to rob me in the taxi and had somebody even hijack my taxi, try to put me in a headlock. So, you know, self-defense. But I never really got around to it. I just said, it's probably easier to just switch jobs. <laughs> so that's what I did instead. And I moved out of the place I was in. So, yeah. Uh, but regardless, the bump stock rests against your shoulder and has a, like a, a spring in it. And it... It makes it so you really don't have to do any work, and it just it basically just pulls the trigger. Okay, so. right. And all right, so that's the first thing. That's the first measure, gun control measure that they're pushing. Second one is increased background checks. So I really don't know what they look for on background checks as of now, but obviously, whatever it is that they're looking for. Um, a lot of times I've heard people that are put on the terror watch list have, this is a gun control argument, people that have been put on the terror watch list are allowed to buy firearms and, or maybe the no fly list, which is a weird argument. It makes sense on face value. I would say that if you're on the terror watch list or the no fly list, you shouldn't be able to buy a firearm, but it is a constitutional right to buy a firearm and or to not maybe not to buy but to possess and there's been weird instances where like senators have gotten on the terror watch list or at least political activists like a lot of strange that I don't I don't know that there's even a court that that needs to approve people to be put on the terror watch list so I'm not I don't know how much that has to do with the background check but I know they want to quote unquote tighten up the background check make sure that the reporting is more standardized in a mo maybe a more centralized database and then the third thing that they want you might know more about that and then the third thing that gun control advocates are pushing at least right now as a response is um changing the age to buy a gun from 18 to 21. okay so regarding your second point with uh background checks the shooter in texas that that shot up that church he actually wasn't legally allowed to buy a gun in texas he didn't get his gun uh, from texas good. he got it from new mexico he was actually the air force had some re real uh, diagnosed him with some real mental issues 
right? So he should have been on to, on the federal database. There is a database place in uh, um, a, a database in place nationally. There is. So it's already there. The problem is that what we need to do is we need to both force states to accept it and okay, maybe hold on. Let me let me back up. Back off my political opinion for a second. Is people didn't do their job. That's really what it came down to was this guy in Texas slipped through the cracks. This was Sutherland Springs, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. He slipped through the cracks. He went to New Mexico and bought it because Texas said, I mean, even Texas has gun laws, right? Texas told him, no, you can't have a gun. <laughs> you are not mentally capable of wielding a gun in a responsible manner. Right. So even Texas denied this guy a gun. So he shouldn't have been able to get one in New Mexico. So, and let's talk about the Constitution a little bit. Um, in fact, let's read the Second Amendment. Okay. So, and we also have to understand a lot of context around this. So it, it reads, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Now, what I notice about gun rights people is they say the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Mm -hmm. they, they forget that little comma between arms and shell. That's a really important comma. All right, so I guess you're saying that grammatically it has to do with a well them maintaining a well-regulated militia. Yes, uh, and have, you've read the Federalist Papers, correct? Some. Okay, well, one of the big things in the Federalist Papers was the right to bear arms. And that's because the people of the United States were incredibly paranoid. So they were really paranoid. And plus, if you go back and look at the Revolutionary War, the North was virtually bankrupt. And one of the ways they were able to actually form a union Right. One of the one of the big things that they had to do was concede a lot of things to the southern states because the northern states were pretty much bankrupt and they needed to pay a bunch of debts that they owed from the Revolutionary War and a bunch of IOUs that they that they uh, put out. So okay. that's a big deal, too. Right. So they couldn't I mean, they could afford a military, but they kind of also had to keep expenses down. That wasn't in the federal papers, but that's just kind of how things played out. Now we have a military, but uh, the purpose of the militia was in case the United States government became tyrannical. Right. And George Washington actually called a militia because they put a tax on whiskey, and then the Whiskey Rebellion came up, and then George Washington called up the militia. The militia came, and uh, no shots were fired because the militia would have destroyed the rebellion. Now, this militia was not the standing army of the United States. This was the militia of a state militia, or basically, like the it was basically left over from the um, Revolutionary War. I I'm not really clear about that. 
but it was but it uh, but definitely George, Washington, George Washington. Yeah, George Washington called up a militia, and they put down the rebellion without anybody getting killed. Thankfully, I mean, in general, I, I, my, and I know where this is like a pretty far removed from the direct topic of gun control. What to do with all the weapons we have in the country, which is a lot. But I'm overall, I mean, who knows in this day and age if it could really be done, but we have a long tradition of isolationism that we've kind of gotten away from in the past 50 years. And my, I, would, I would almost prefer a no standing army and citizens to have weapons and to be called into a militia if, if they need it in time of war, but in peacetime to not have a standing army or to have a much smaller and less expensive standing army than we have but i understand that a lot of what we do geopolitically depends on us being the strongest military like we strong arm a lot of other countries basically because we have such a powerful military and the threat of of you know military aggression on our parts well another another big thing when it comes to our military is 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 that we have drones, we have tanks, we have jets, right? So where's the limit here? If we're talking a well-regulated militia and something being necessary to the security of a free state, it, let's, let's pretend the U.S. government becomes tyrannical, right? How are we going to fight the U.S. government? They have drones, tanks, and jets, and we have guns. Right, right, right. They have bombers, they have nuclear weapons, they have the Moab. Well, I think in some ways that makes the Second Amendment outdated. But I would say, I mean, what it reminds me of is when we dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and it, they, and people came back, like, and people were questioning whether it was a good idea the defense that I've always heard, and I've heard it from veterans, I've heard it from a lot of people, they always say, well, the Japanese had a, had a million men in their army, and there was, a, there was a soldier behind every blade of grass, and they were armed to the teeth, and we would have lost a lot, maybe a million of our own men going in to fight on their terrain, so we had to drop the bomb in order to force them to surrender because us going in house by house and uprooting them would have been a disaster. And and I think that that logic holds to some extent for the Second Amendment advocates in the sense that, yes, there's drones. Yes, there's atomic wep nuclear weapons, although, I mean, it's pretty hard to imagine them using it on their own I mean, maybe not impossible, but hard to imagine the U.S. government using its own people. But there's targeted missiles, there's tanks. But it does make a difference, like, if you have weapons. Like, if you have weapons, you're not going to get herded up into cattle cars like the way the Jews in the Holocaust or pre-Holocaust were herded up into ghettos and then, you know, put into these camps at least you know that it's going to be they're going to think twice about it before they attempt it you know what i mean whereas yeah. if all the guns go away you know it's pretty much what the guys with the guns say goes yeah so the, one of the things that 
So switching back to really what we want to talk about is gun control. Uh, the gun control people say that the United States has one of the highest rates of uh, gun-related deaths in the world. Mm -hmm. And they are, number one, we are one, two, three, four, we are the number 12 when it comes to uh, total gun deaths. Now, the problem is that that is a misleading statistic. Because how many homicides are we talking about? How many suicides? How many unintentional? How many undetermined? So, okay. and, and so per 100,000, we have 10.5 gun deaths per 100,000 pe people per okay. year. Right? Okay. But that's total gun deaths. Now, if we're talking homicides, we are number 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. We are number 18, which is still pretty high. So that is, I mean, number 18 in the world is still very high. But you know what's funny about both the total and the homicide statistic uh -huh. is that every single Latin American country is in the top 10. Well, not every Latin American country. Um, Not Latin American. Sorry, I meant Central American. No, no, but not every Central American country. For instance, Pan oh, Panama is. Um, Mexico. Belize isn't yeah, in there. Yeah, Belize isn't in there. Belize is like the only one that's not in there. And Belize is actually... I don't even see Belize anywhere. Belize. Where's Belize? I don't even see Why it on the list. list. Why don't you give the list of the top 10? Okay, so it goes, so as far as total, here's what we're talking about. All right, so here's the list. Starting top 10, Honduras, Venezuela, El Salvador, Swaziland, Guatemala, Jamaica, Colombia, Brazil, Panama, Uruguay, Mexico, and the United States. Okay. So there's, that's a lot. Then, I mean, if I can say something, to me, it doesn't even speak to Central America. It doesn't speak to Central American violence. To me, it speaks to, like, political instability. Yeah, that's a big, that's a, you're absolutely right. That's a big deal. And that's something that people don't take into effect on, on the gun rights side, I'd say. Um, now, regarding homicides, it's a little bit different. So here we go with gun-related homicides. Honduras. Wait a second. Honduras is on top in... Yeah, they're on top in both homicides and... Uh, and uh, total gun violence. So Honduras, Venezuela, Swaziland, Jamaica, Guatemala, El Salvador, Colombia, Brazil, Panama, the Philippines, South Africa, Mexico, Costa Rica... Paraguay, Uruguay, Peru, Nicaragua, and then the United States. Okay. So we pretty much have, other than Belize, which I don't even see statistics for Belize. They probably, they might not even have the, do they have enough infrastructure to do a study? Yeah, maybe, but they're also culturally different than the rest of the Central American countries because they speak English. I don't think they really get involved with the drug traffic. Oh, I see. Yeah, so we have uh, 
So that that's actually a big deal. <coughs> so it's not just political instability. Bill, you mentioned something earlier. Well, we both kind of mentioned something earlier. Um, because one of the things that gun rights activists like to talk about is Chicago. Mm-hmm. Right? So actually, speaking of gun rights activists, there's a guy, his name is Nick Fritas, and he is running for U.S. Senate against, I believe, Tim Kaine. And he is a delegate, a Republican delegate. And actually, he had a very interesting video. Floor. So over the last several days, Mr. Speaker, there's been a lot of discussion about an open and honest debate with respect to school shootings, gun violence, gun control, etc. And an open and honest debate, as I understand it, is one that would rely on data, facts, evidence, analysis, reason, logic, etc., etc. And I'm certainly willing to have that debate. I think if we were going to look seriously at school shootings and gun control, we would analyze things like, why do all mass shootings seem to take place in gun-free zones? Wouldn't it be reasonable to test whether or not the efficacy of gun-free zones have actually achieved what their intended intent is? We'd start to look at most of these shooters come from broken homes. What sort of government policies have actually encouraged broken homes? You can look at left-leaning think tanks like the Brookings Institute that will actually say that some of it can be attributed to various cultural changes that happened in the 60s to include uh, the abortion industry. You can look at a more conservative-leaning organizations that will say that the welfare state contributed significantly to dismantling the family as families became more and more dependent upon the government than they were mothers and fathers in the home raising children. We could look at various status with those areas within the United States and around the world that have strict gun control measures and what their crime rates look like, whether it's Chicago, New York City, Washington, D.C., and others that have incredibly strict gun laws, and yet for some reason it hasn't seemed to stop the gun violence in those particular areas. We can look at the analysis out of uh, 538, which is considered more of a left-of-center data analysis think tank, where you had several analysts now confirm through the data that they were looking at, not just in the United States, but in Canada, Great Britain, and Australia, that they were shocked that the data did not support what they thought gun control measures would actually achieve. We can look at the number of cases within the United States where a gun has been used for self-defense. Estimates range everywhere from 100,000 uses to over close to a million uses within the United States. Now, some organizations and some reporters only want to report on the ones where a gun was used and it actually resulted in the death or maiming of the perpetrator. But if you look at the ones where the gun was used and the mere presence of the firearm actually dissuaded a criminal from committing an act of violence, an act of rape, an act of murder, the number shoots up, it skyrockets. So when people on this side talk about the importance of the Second Amendment, please understand it's not just some base philosophical conviction that we all have. It is rooted in the idea that while we may be a post-enlightenment society, the vast majority of horrible atrocities that we've seen have happened in those post-enlightenment societies. Has happened as a result of governments systematically disarming citizens and claiming themselves to be the sole responsible party for their security, and then turning on those same citizens and punishing them. That's the most egregious cases. But in the individual cases of self-defense, that's why the people on this side of the aisle hold the Second Amendment in such high esteem, because we honestly believe that you have an inherent right to defend yourself. And your ability to defend yourself should not be excluded 
to, to your size. Firearms provide someone that is weaker and not as fast the ability to actually defend themselves from a stronger attacker. Some of the other things that we would look at, and, and some of the things I would hope we would have bipartisan support for, all of us agree that we need to make sure that our students are better protected when they go to schools. One of the things that we would look at is arming certain teachers. Not every teacher, but a teacher that is comfortable with it, is, is former law enforcement, is former military, that is now in the classroom. Delegate Plum said yesterday that that was ridiculous to consider. Why? Is it because the other side of this debate will only accept one quote-unquote solution to this problem, and that is tearing apart or gutting the Second Amendment? And I understand. We're going to mention just a couple of the bills that were, were done this year, right? Background checks, getting rid of bump stocks. If you're wondering the other reason why we can't have an honest debate over this one is because, quite frankly, I don't think any of us on this side of the aisle believe you when you say that's all you want to do. It'll be bump stocks, it'll be background checks, then it'll be different kind of background checks that register the guns. Then after that, it'll be we need to ban assault weapons. What's an assault weapon? Something that looks scary. Then after that, it'll be semi-automatic rifles. After that, it'll be semi-automatic handguns. Then it'll be revolvers, shotguns. Because when the policies fail to produce the results you are promising to your constituents, you'll be back with more reasons on why we've got to infringe on Second Amendment rights. The other reason why it's really difficult to have an honest and open debate about this is because of this, members of this body comparing members on this side of the aisle to Nazis. Members on the other side of the aisle saying that when a 24-year-old teacher gets up and says that the whole debate is between the Second Amendment or her life, that's a false dilemma. And quite frankly, one of the ones that I found the most offensive, along with being compared to Nazis, was being compared to segregationists. I just want to remind everyone, someone, very quickly, it was not our party that supported slavery, that fought women's suffrage, that rounded up tens of thousands of Asian Americans and put them in concentration camps, that supported Jim Crow, that supported segregation, or supported mass resistance. That wasn't our party. That was the Democrat Party. Now, I'm thrilled that Democrats no longer believe that, and I don't believe that a single current member of this body who is a Democrat ever believe those things, but I would really appreciate it if every time you want to make a powerful point, you don't project the sins, the atrocities, and the injustices that the Democratic Party perpetrated on others onto us. So if we want to have an open and honest debate, I am all for that. Let's do that. But it does start with a certain degree of mutual respect. It starts with a certain degree of not assuming that the only reason why we believe in the Second Amendment is because the NRA paid us off. Well, if that's the sort of logic you want to use, why don't you go take a look at how much money the NRA spends and how much money Planned Parenthood spends? Because when I get up here and I talk about abortion, I don't assume that you're all bought and paid for by Planned Parenthood. I don't assume you're horrible people because I disagree with you on a policy position. I assume you have deep convictions that we can have an argument and a debate about it. But if you're not willing to reciprocate that level of respect, well, don't be surprised when it becomes more difficult to talk about these things. Because there is a lot that we can do, and there is a lot that we need to do to ensure the security of our children and our citizens. But yes, we are going to have a problem with, with so-called solutions, which infringe on people's liberty under the promise the government will provide for their security. Because ultimately, in this last school shooting, we had a perfect example of government being engaged over 30 times and still failing to provide security for those students. Thank you, Mr. Speaker.
Phil, what was your opinion on that video? So there were some things that I thought were interesting. I thought that his points about, I mean, I've heard a lot of times people say, look at these cities, look at Chicago, they have tight gun laws and they have high homicide rates. I don't really agree with the implication of that because what's the solution? Loosen the gun laws in Chicago? It's, it's already the Wild West. Imagine what it would be like then. It'd be worse. I mean, they have gun problems. <clears throat> I think that stem from like poverty and gang violence, drugs mostly. And I mean, there's very, there's very antagonistic police force and it's like a tale of two cities. There's like a very poor city in Chicago and then there's a very wealthy city and they're totally separated. And in the wealthy area, you don't have gun violence. But what, um, what I liked, one thing that I liked that he said was um, basically that gun, that people have a respect for guns and being able to own guns because he believes self-defense is a right and the worst uses of guns have not been mass shootings in the like the columbine or sandy hook or the las vegas shooter or pulse nightclub they've been government regimes using guns against citizens or against you know let's call them uh, undesirables within their own societies. And, and I agree with that completely. Like that's the worst case scenario. But he, basically he's saying because of that, he doesn't trust the government to take on the full responsibility of <clears throat> protecting its citizens, that the citizens should be more self-reliant and try to protect themselves and that that's why it's written into the constitution i agreed with that and i also thought that he made a good point when he spoke up against the rhetoric and the like the yes the rhetoric of of the gun control people and and i i i feel like on this i used to be more on the gun control side and now i'm slightly more on the gun advocacy side like the second amendment side and, and uh, it's not all to do with the, the the hysterical rhetoric but it's partially because there was a teacher who said you have to like he he quoted you where she stood up in in the delegation <coughs> excuse me and she said you have to choose between i have to choose between someone having a right to a gun and my life and that's not true like that's for almost everybody, that's not true. Yes, some people die at the at, due to gun violence, but a lot of times guns do protect people, right? Like, yep. And also, a lot of times people never interact with guns at all, so you, it's not a direct, like, mm, it's a false dilemma. It's not a direct, um, basic problem between you know her life like a one-to-one -one correlation between her life and someone's right to own a gun it's not and that kind of like talk i think alienates and hurts the conversation and that's what you hear a lot of like even the thing with these witnesses the student witnesses it's just it's all emo emotional rhetoric 
and um, it's all meant to pull on the heartstrings and kind of manipulate people into thinking. I'm not saying that it's wrong to think emotionally. I think you should think emotionally about things as well as logically, but you know, it's you're not you should be manipulated into making bad decisions, and that's what it feels like a lot of times that that the gun control people are trying to do. I, I've always felt that Bloomberg, if we if we were, if we were to look into Bloomberg's record on gun control, he's pretty he's pretty stiff and emotionless about it. He just looks at the statistics. He feels that <clears throat> gun violence should go down. That they should do targeted policing of groups that that's why he had stop and frisk he didn't feel good about it like he wouldn't be happy about it but he said that's the what the statistics show and i'm going to address that and i respected that but the 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 rhetoric bothered me and then the last thing he said which maybe we could get into a little bit is that oftentimes people who are who want guns second amendment rights people get compared to not he said they get compared to nazis yeah. and segregationists and that bothers me. And then he said that, and he was a Republican, and he said that the Democratic Party was the party that allowed those things. And although they don't stand for them now, not Nazism, but they allowed segregation, and they allowed um, yeah, they were they were all pro slavery, right? They right. were also the party in charge when the Japanese and and Asian Americans were put into camps yeah, sure. during World War Two. They pretty much <laughs> voted against the the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s. Right, they were, they were the Jim Crow. Um, yeah, Jim Crow, the KKK, everything. And his words were, I don't bring that up every time we talk about gun control. And, you know, he's he's absolutely right. And I remember during the Bush era, all the, all the liberals and Democrats and progressives were like, Bush is a Nazi. And then when Obama got elected, all the all the right wing conservative Republican people were like Obama is a Nazi, and now all the, now that another Republican is in office, the Democrats, progressives, and liberals, what are they doing? Well, Trump is a Nazi. Everybody I don't like is a Nazi. I think the right called Obama a communist, not a Nazi. I heard him get called a Nazi by quite a few people that I know. It wasn't always public, but. There were plenty of people that called him a Nazi. They're like, he's just like a Nazi. He's a communist and a Nazi and a socialist. And I was like, come on, guys. <laughs> it's like everybody I don't like is Hitler. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I feel like I feel like the one of the issues with let's say yeah you there's no reason you should do that and i i think he's right like yeah the democrats did that in the past they've disavowed it they've gone away from it so it doesn't need to be brought up in their faces but they can't be bringing it up in the republicans faces all the time like the republicans weren't responsible for that stuff yeah exactly so that's a that's a big deal i had a couple problems with some of the things that um nick nick fritas said and not complete problems. I like some of the. I like most of what he said, but he talked about Washington D.C., Chicago, and New York when it comes to uh, murder in America and homicides and such things. Um, let me see here. So I have a couple statistics now. Uh, let me see here. Crime in New York City. So. 
they started keeping track of murders per year. And this is just murders per year. This isn't really just gun violence. It's murders in general. So let's talk about the murder rate in New York City. Because he said it is really high. But actually, the murder rate in New York City is much, much lower than, than that of Chicago and Washington, D.C. Uh, per 100,000. So let's see here. Um, low and stable, New York, New York. So as far as murder in America and homicides per, per 100,000 people, so they started keeping track of it in 1928 in New York City, right? And it goes from 1928 to 1990, it goes from 404 murders per year to 2,245 murders. Hmm. Right? So in 1990, there were 2,245 murders in 1990. Mm -hmm. Phil, take a guess at how many murders there were last year. Maybe 300? Less, maybe. A little bit less. 290. That's wow. about 13% of what it was in 1990. That is wow. a gigantic, gigantic drop. Now, how many murders did Chicago have last year? So, annual murder totals in Chicago. So they started keeping track of it in 1928 as well, right? So, in 1928, it was pretty darn high. Now, why would the murder rate in 1928 be high in Chicago, Phil? Maybe it's uh, organized crime, probably. Al Capone? Mm. So, the whole untouchables idea... Elliot Ness, that whole thing. So it was mm -hmm. really, really high. We're talking to the tune of like 1,100 murders in 1928. And so in 1990, uh, it, it got pretty close to that near 1990. So it went back up over 1,000. Mm. Now, uh, last year, it was pretty high. It was above 990. So I think it was like, 997 or 998 here. So, they only really have a graph. So it's hard to figure it out, but it's just under a thousand murders last year. So, uh, there was a giant dip, and then in 2010, it spiked. So, but the funny thing is, it Chicago has stayed between 1828 and like 1200 murders a year right since they started recording so chicago has always been a problem and there are as many as 70 active and inactive chicago street gangs with 753 factions that's a huge <laughs> that's a huge problem Mm-hmm. And I think that stems also from, I mean, there's a lot, who knows the causes for that, but there's a lot of breakdown in the, in the family structure. There's a lot of drugs, the, the big drug epidemic in the nineties caused a lot of that, that they haven't really been able to recover from. 
and the and in and if I mean a lot of that happens in the black community, and the black community exists large part in what's called I mean it's not called the black economy because it's predominantly blacks in it, but it, the black or the black economy or sometimes it's called the shadow economy, uh, working out off the books basically like when African American males especially are struggling to get employed they still need money so they work in other ways they they and you know more dangerous professions more dangerous jobs street level jobs and that exposes them to more crime especially if it's related to drugs people do erratic things they they have just you know different different structures of community and if and if they're in a broken home and they're looking up to gang members as role models a lot of times the whole induction process includes some kind of violence and it's just a kind of a, a recurring cycle and then because there's so much antagonism from the police there, there's not really any bridge made there and the cycle continues in New York, there's there's a lot of research done about why it why it stopped, but I mean a big part of it is that New York is such a wealthy city. Washington D.C. again a very very wealthy city, and and in New York, I think there's because in, there's so much foreign immigration, I think that and I, I you could we could check the statistics, but I think the black population american-born black population in, Ch in chicago is bigger than the american-born black population in new york but i think minorities have better opportunities in new york than they have in chicago and so they're able to integrate into the mainstream economy easier and not have to be left out kind of to fend for themselves in the fringes of society where a lot of this violence is happening we talked about lack of stability in Central America. We at least briefly mentioned it. And lack of stability, <clears throat> lack of economic opportunity, um, I think that's very directly correlated to violent crime. Yeah, um, so that's true. And we also have to think about poverty as well. So let's switch over to the, some of the gun rights arguments, right? One of the big things in, in gun rights is, is that uh, um, they always use Switzerland as like a prime example, right? Switzerland, while well, they have their citizens carrying guns and, and, you know, like, let me quote Arrested Development here. It's like comparing apples to some fruit nobody's ever heard of. It really is because you can't directly compare. There's a lot of reasons that this breaks down. Okay. So mm -hmm. regarding Switzerland, first of all, let's get their population out of the way. They have about 8 million people. <laughs> How many people are in the United States? About 320 million. Exactly. That is a huge, huge difference. 40 times this size. Yeah. So it's a lot harder to make laws. The more people you have and the more diverse your people are. Like, I could understand if we were all Swiss and white, like Switzerland. 
Mm-hmm. Right? If we were all Swiss and like Switzerland, it, then it would be a little bit different. But we have so many different cultures. We have black culture, Latin culture, white culture, um, Muslim culture, Mormon culture. Right? We have so many different cultures. Southern culture, northern culture, west coast culture. Like, <laughs> we have so many different kinds of cultures that it's really hard to make a one-size-fits-all law about guns because of the cultural differences. And my second thing about Switzerland is they are one of the most wealthy nations in the world. They are so wealthy. Their standard of living in Switzerland Switzerland is they have the eighth highest per capita gross domestic product in the world. Mm -hmm. Eighth highest. Mm -hmm. And eighth highest with only eight million people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the standard of living, right? It, it's really high. And you know what? You won't find. Well, I actually don't like ink gross. I don't like gross domestic product per capita income as a average measure, because if you have a billionaire, it brings everybody's up. You really should do medium, median, excuse me, median average income, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Either way. We have, rich. What I mean is we have greater inequality than them. We might have as much wealth as them, but we have much greater inequality. Yeah, exactly, because we have so many different cultures. That's a big part of it, mm-hmm. right? We have a lot of people to represent, and it's really hard to get everybody to agree, especially as political tensions keep rising and rhetoric keeps going, right? As mm-hmm. both sides just want to resort to sticking out their con- their tongue and saying, I'm better than you, nah, yaha, nah, yaha, and then they start, you know, throwing ad hominem attacks at each other, um, and that's that. And then you know, rest is history. Just look at what's happening in the government. Anyway, so that's a that's a big deal, right? Now, there are a lot of claims made by gun rights activists regarding Switzerland. Well, in Switzerland, every single male, uh, I think it's age twenty is required to be in the military. Not really the military. It's more a militia. So, and if somebody invades Switzerland, the militia gets called. So everybody has to have a weapon that's in the military. So military people are allowed to have automatic weapons. But you're not allowed, I believe you're not allowed to carry the automatic weapon in public. But you're also not allowed to conceal your weapons. You're allowed to have semi-automatics all you want. But you're mm-hmm. not allowed to conceal them. Everybody needs to know that you have a weapon on you. Mm-hmm. Which, nah, I think that's a pretty good law. Um, yeah, so you need to have a weapon on you. Where, where, or you don't need to. You, you need to make sure it's you know visible. But, yeah, they're required to have, to have a lot of training. And that's the difference. We don't have a lot of training in in the United States with weapons for a lot of people. Like, we don't have required training like we right. should, I right. think. Um, I think it should sort of be like going to DMV a little bit. Because everybody loves DMV. Well, even I think, you know, to be honest, I feel like that's... You know, I've heard the gun activists, gun rights activists quote the Second Amendment. 
All right, so I, I saw this town hall, Barack Obama, these are maybe two, a couple years ago. Barack Obama was talking about um, com, what he called common sense gun laws. And he said, there's dangerous things that you need to get trained to use uh, a car. And then he said, even when, we use, even when we have Tylenol, we put a child's safety cap on Tylenol or whatever, because, you know, it's not, you need to be of a certain age and of a certain whatever mental capacity in order to not take too many, et cetera. So we need common sense things in place in gun control. Why, why do we have it on Tylenol and cars, but not on guns? And then a, a guy stood up, and I think he was ex-military, and he said, well, because it's in the Constitution. There's no protection for Advil. There's no protection for driving in the Constitution. Fair enough, except for this, that the first line of the Second Amendment is in order to maintain a well-regulated militia. So the militia has to be well-regulated, right? You can't just have not well-regulated militia. In other words, untrained people running around with assault weapons is not a well-regulated militia. A well-regulated militia would mean something closer to Switzerland, where you're talking about people with legitimate ability to use the guns, training on safety, understanding of how they work, understanding of their potential to do people harm, etc. And I think that I have if one. Took, I have one question for you, Phil. Yeah. One thing gun right activists would have stopped you like a long time ago, and they would have said, "What's an assault weapon?" Did I say assault weapon? You sure did. Oh well, I said that anecdotally, but <laughs> I, I mean, I just said that. I, I don't mean just for an assault weapon. I shouldn't have said. But assault what's an assault weapon? weapon? That's the problem. I shouldn't have said that if I did, but I'll tell you what an assault weapon is. Assault weapon is normally classified as a. Uh, it's just classified as a semi-automatic rifle. I believe it's classified as a semi-automatic rifle. Well, the problem is there's... I haven't seen very many rifles that are not semi-automatic. Just pretty much shotguns. There, I know of a lot of people that have semi-automatic rifles. so, And they just use them for hunting. So that's the that's the problem. That's one of the big problems I have with the liberal side is they talk about assault weapons but they don't really clarify what they mean and i i, I think that uh, i'll tell you another thing about assault yeah, weapons. yeah go for it assault weapons have well what are officially assault rifles have like what's called selectable firing modes meaning that they can switch not just in semi-automatic but they could can switch into a, a lot of them can switch into fully automatic mode. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not really sure if fully automatic mode should be allowed for more than like 10% of the population. But we also, I want to talk about another thing about this is they want to raise the minimum age to buy guns and mm -hmm. What about people who serve in the military, right? If you have a 17-year-old who was in the military, does he get an exemption? And how do we, how do, if he's, if he's been cleared mentally uh, and passes all the federal database stuff, should he be allowed to have an automatic weapon or a semi-automatic weapon if he's not yet 21 years old or 20 years old?
or whatever I you want the age to be. Why not move it to 21? I think that's fine. Yeah, but if he's he if he gets out of the military after like two years and he's only 19, mm-hmm. is he allowed to have a is he allowed to buy a weapon because he was in the military and he was trained how to use a gun? We've had killer military types before for hood. And no, notice that I said if he passes the the mental health check. Oh, oh, oh. In the database. Yeah, maybe in that case he could get a wa- military waiver, just like military people a lot of times are allowed, like in law enforcement are allowed to do conceal and carry where regular citizens are. There's, there's. by the way, I, I just looked online. I just wanted to point out one more thing about the assault weapons for um, listeners who may be unclear about it is one other thing when I was talking about the selectable firing modes, like a three-round burst is an option between fully automatic and semi-automatic. That might be it. That might be something that a assault rifle would have. Okay. Well, that's a yeah. Okay. So we've got this whole thing between gun rights and gun control. Wait, are you on the? Can, are you against or for the eight, uh, moving it from eighteen to twenty-one? I don't know. Okay. I have no clue. Uh, I I don't know if it's going to make that big of a difference because most of the school shooters. Or I don't know if most of the school shooters, but a lot of shooters in the last ten years have been over the age of twenty-one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, Omar. Is it, Omar Mateen was twenty-seven, I believe. Yeah, is it really Steven gonna? Paddock, how big of a Steven difference Paddock, is it gonna make? And who's Steven Paddock was in his fifties. Yeah, who's who's to say that these people aren't just gonna make a makeshift bomb out of a out of a a, a, a crock pot and put it in the school? Yeah, that's true. Like that's that's the problem. So either way, you, either way you slice it, there's going to be problems no matter what you do. Okay. So, I don't. That doesn't. That's. I mean, the gun control people always say that doesn't mean you you shouldn't do anything though. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything, but I think that uh, we need to examine uh, a lot of things. That happened. Now, uh, I want to I want to move on to something that I found interesting and that I found out about that the media has not really talked about at all mm-hmm. regarding this the the Parkland school shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what happened was there was an investigation done into the uh, uh, Broward County Sheriff's Department, and we're gonna get more in depth about school aid and such things next week when we have one of the best math teachers in in our podcast in, in new york city on our podcast um but yes. but we need to we need to discuss this because gun control and gun rights on this last school shooting have really no place to be talked about well not no place but they're 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 um Neither here nor there. So what actually happened was, so all of this can be traced back to no child left behind. It can all be traced to laws like no child left behind and and, and similar laws, right? So what happened was a lot of, what happens actually a lot is that a lot of school funding is given to schools with low crime rates and with high test scores. And so what happened was 
Broward County was in danger of losing a lot of federal funding. So they didn't want to lose their state and federal funding for their school. So what they did is they made a contract with the Broward County Sheriff's Departments to make sure that none of the, their high school students got arrested. That way they could have a really low crime rate. And, and a lot of these students were committing misdemeanor and felony level events. One of the reasons that that deputy didn't go into the school, one of the big reasons was that there was a contract that he wasn't allowed to arrest students for misdemeanor and felony activities, right? And that is the problem. Now, we'll discuss this more in depth on the next episode, but, I, I, yeah, this is the real problem. The real problem with Parkland isn't, isn't, oh, well, should he have had a gun? Should he have been able to buy a gun? Should, should they have guns in school? I mean, we, we, we're going to have that debate now, and mostly next week, but, we also need to address the actual issue here. So, I mean, I would say, first of all, I don't think that the sheriff, I'll push back a little bit. I don't think the sheriff didn't go in because of this new policy that was implemented by Broward County. I, I think that... Yeah, it actually um, wasn't a new policy. It's from uh, 2012, actually. I mean, that's a new-ish policy. That's from but, six years ago. And fortunately for the whole United States, No Child Left Behind was repealed in 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, but this occurred in 2012. So, okay. you know, you can well, still see uh, a direct correlation. I mean, the reason the guy didn't go in is either because he was following old protocol, which was to set up a perimeter, or it was just personal cowardice. But they're doing an investigation. And from from what it sounds like, it was just cowardice. He didn't want to go in. At one point, there were four guys, and none of them went in. And I think Trump was right when he said that they acted, like, very disgracefully and should feel humiliated and dishonorably. Um, Trump's – well, uh, let's not go into Trump for a minute. Although I thought I, I think he's acted pretty interesting. I, th I think his response has been interesting in the sense that he – he did say some things like he said that he would have gone in. He doesn't know because he wasn't there. You have to be there to know. But he thinks he would have gone in even without a weapon. And then he, he also said, but then conversely, he said that the Republican senators are afraid of the NRA. I love that statement. I'm sorry. And that, and that he's going to make sure that bump stocks for one are banned and he's going to do some other things. And he's strong on Second Amendment, so I think he's showing that there can be a middle ground to some extent. And, and I think that's what people wanted from him would be to not play to stereo, the stereotypes of the party. So we, we, I mean, I think people can be happy about that. But let me say what I was going to say about um, school violence and, uh, and what you were saying about Broward County. I do think I think what it is is setting the wrong cultural precedent. I, I I don't think this guy was part of an organized effort to do crime, but I think being lenient on crime is a bad idea. And Broward County had a lot of infractions due to that, and kind of a culture of allowing and permitting 
in factions because they wanted to keep their their you like you said their arrest numbers low and i don't know how much of it was based on funding because from what i understand from no child left behind most of it is is based on test scores and not delinquency but i guess graduation rates wouldn't be included in that because if you're getting arrested you're not graduating so that could be a point that you're making but also there's a big push from urban communities you've heard of the school to prison pipeline there's a big push to reverse that. So there's a lot of social justice warrior types and social justice advocates who don't want to see high arrests because they feel that kids are being unduly punished for things that they do as adolescents when maybe their prefrontal cortex isn't developed or they're, you know, they're just acting impulsively as teenagers or they make one mistake and now they're marked out for life. So they've been trying to do more mediation and other things like that. And obviously it has dark, a dark side because, um, you know, in order to get praise and accolades, and you're right, bring up the graduation rates, I'm sure. The, the superintendent of the school basically made a deal with the sheriff's department to l change the style of policing to make these infractions. And at first there's misdemeanors, change them from arrest to citations. And then I don't know what the crimes were reported, but felonious activities drugs and that's dirty i mean a lot of that turned over it sounded like dirty policing as well and, and i think maybe this guy um nicholas cruz is an example is not an example of a direct result of that but he comes at the end of a wave of <clears throat> more permissive attitudes towards criminal activity stemming from broward county and miami-dade county yeah i i think you, you I'm always a fan of you let the small fish go so you can catch the big fish later. Okay. And that's that's the style of policing you need. It's okay to crack down on certain things, right? But there are other things that, you know, you kind of just got to let go. Like if you see a guy that's going 12 miles over the speed limit at night right past you, and then you see another guy that just passed you with one headlight. Who should you pull over? The guy with the one headlight. Oh, okay. Because that's a lot more dangerous. Because people right. might mistake it for a motorcycle. Okay. And and, and if it's only one headlight and it's a whiteout condition, even during the day, you might get in an accident. Because you sure. might think it's a motorcycle, so you might not be able to swerve out of the way if they start to go off the road sure 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 so you know it, it's it's a it's all about that and i know all about traffic infractions uh <laughs> unfortunately yeah i know all about getting tickets i've got my well-deserved tickets in my day uh and some that were definitely not deserved but regardless we need to set up respect for authority right being respectful toward authority doesn't mean you agree with authority all the time. It doesn't mean that you can't resist. It doesn't mean that you can't advocate for changes to be done. But part of respect for authority means also being fearful of the power of authority. There needs to be a little bit of fear. I mean, you shouldn't live in a constant state of perpetual fear. But at the same time, order has bro broke down. Authority has broke down. 
Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Phil? I mean, I agree with you, and and uh, but I think it's big. I think it's cultural wide, and I think it's not as I I. The I think the authority issue is. It's just hard because we you know we live in an era where there's a lot of postmodern thinking and where people are cynical of authority and where there's been a lot of distrust of authority and a lot of it is is correct a lot of it is i i feel spot on but at the same time i don't see submission as a dirty word and if you want to or subordination as a dirty word and if you want to have functioning society in a non-fragmented society and a society that can accomplish its objectives it, it needs to function under authority because it needs to be able to properly execute the things that it sets out to execute and who knows what that will look like I, i'm not sure like trump is a very kind of old school strong arm type and i mean that's a bad it has a bad connotation but he's this kind of authority figure he believes in it and he stands on it like to, recently i think yesterday or two days ago he was talking about the drug problem and he said he asked xi jinping xi jinping the <clears throat> chinese president who's now i guess gonna get rid of term limits was only two people opposed him and is now going to be president for life but he asked him if they had a drug problem in china and he said no and he said why and xi jinping said it was because of the death penalty and trump didn't go on a long political <coughs> explanation about why they need the death penalty but he said it's something that he thinks that they should consider he briefly said it off the cuff that he thinks it's something that should be considered here for drug dealers and he said if someone in his was his point he made this free willing speech he said if somebody kills somebody just one person in a kind of fight or in a combat situation stabs him or shoots him they could in, under, in certain states face the death penalty but what about a drug dealer who could kill four or five hundred people by drugs by you know by selling them drugs ruining their lives and is getting rich and never has to face a death you know the possibility yeah. of a death penalty so i mean it's an interesting point and i think the drug <clears throat> dealer especially at the higher levels is a is very culpable and much and the drug user should not be seen in the same light and and treated as harshly like nonviolent drug offenders drug possessors like small amounts of marijuana meth whatever they have if it's a small amount for personal use no you shouldn't be locked up for having a, a, a like a you know quarter ounce of pot for like eight years or ten years that's crazy it's very expensive if you're not violent but if you're a drug dealer and you're ruining the community yes you should face really stiff penalties and that's the kind of line he comes down on and i think people could respond to that except for the fact that there's so much noise and there's so much feeling of like well you can't trust him because he's a white male and you can't trust him because he's racist and this just the all these basic ideologies i guess that oppose authority that are about 
subverting authority. And there's a sense that there's something right about that, about subverting unjust authority. But when you're seeing injustice everywhere, it's hard to feel like there, it's a legitimate claim a lot of times. Uh, one thing that annoys me are people that refuse to attend the White House after like uh, uh, an NBA championship team or an NFL championship team and some of the people are like, I'm not going to go to the White House. Listen, I I despise Bill Clinton, but if I were on the in, on the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s, you know, if I were short and fat and could actually play basketball and was able to move to the NBA, um, if I could actually be that team, I, I don't like Bill Clinton, but I would still go and I would be honored that the president of the United States, even though I cannot stand Bill Clinton. I would be honored and I would still go. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that we have, I understand what you're saying, Phil, you know, we have this mistrust toward authority, <laughs> but we need to stop less letting our mistrust of the government drive us away from, from respecting authority. Like I said, from the get go, you know, uh, you should be respectful toward authority and it's okay to disagree with authority. And we should disagree. And any leader that doesn't allow any disagreement is not a good leader. If you do not allow somebody to disagree with you, you're not a very good leader and you shouldn't be in a leadership position. And that's a, you can't be a dictator and expect to have a fully functional, um, and, and expect whatever you're leading to be fully functional. It just mm. isn't going to work. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, we do need to solve some of these social justice issues. Like, for example, you won't see Miami on a very high list for gun violence. Same with Tampa. Same with Boston. Same with L.A. You know, the standard of living in New York City has pretty low crime, too, as we already established earlier. Last year, New York City was ranked one of the 10 safest major cities in the world. And yeah. the safest major city in America. Yeah, see, that's that's a huge, huge, huge thing. Is the standard of living in these cities that I just mentioned is really high. And part of it is making laws <coughs> where people don't need guns. Right. Well, I, I mean, I think that's where you can bridge the left and the right. Because the left will say, well, raise the standard of living. And the right will say, well, okay, but... You know, we, you know, I don't know. They're averse to the inequality issue. They don't want to talk about the inequality issue, but yeah. the left will. So they're. It seems like they have a point, right? If you would really fix the inequality issue, a lot of it would go away. Not all, some of it. But if you were to, but then on the other hand, a lot of times the left will say, "Well, we need to get rid of the guns because they're killing people, and we can't have guns at all." And I think the right is correct to say well, we should keep guns because bad things would happen if we got rid of all our guns. Yeah, and I'm all about kind of the middle ground on it, I think. And and blaming guns for everything is like blaming silverware for me being fat. Well, it's I don't, not, it's I don't not my silverware's fault. I don't know about that. Now, because... if, I had, if I had automatic silverware that automatically shuffled food into my mouth with, while we were sleeping... 
you know, that might cross some lines. And we, we would that would be pretty bad. Uh, but, but like, <laughs> yeah. So then it wouldn't, it would still be my fault because I shouldn't have a machine that automatically, you know, puts food down my throat while I'm sleeping. But at the yeah. same time, you know, why would I allow that machine to be in my house? Like, yeah. why would I allow that? Why would that be allowed in any house? That's right, obviously right. unhealthy. So right, we have right. to think, do we want automatic weapons in public? Right. That's a that's a question to really chew on. Do we need automatic weapons in public necessarily? Well, um, to me, to me, the bigger questions are are actually not the gun violence question, not the gun lo- possession questions. Although that's what we spent our time today talking about. But to me, the bigger questions are. <clears throat> Why do we have Nicholas Cruz existing with this psychological profile coming up so often, right? Nicholas Cruz, Stephen Paddock, Omar Mateen, plenty of God, um, Dylan Roof. Oh, Dylan Roof is the is the South Carolina shooter. I, I confused him with the Columbine shooter earlier. I, I don't remember the Columbine yeah. shooter's name. Well, I was a little kid when that happened, so. But But, I mean... You don't hear about this in other countries. There was a guy in Norway that killed like 60 or 80 people. And he did it under the banner of Christendom. Not not necessarily like Christianity, but the idea that Norway should be uh, Christian in the sense of political. And he did a lo- he made a long, long, long paper about it before he did his murders. And he was very precise about his murders. And he wasn't talking about any kind of evangelical or even catholic tradition he i mean faith he was really talking about a christian tradition he didn't like the immigration to into his country but he was a ideologically motivated person why do we have yes ideologically motivated people but also just seeming anxious um hateful psychopathic people that are way more dangerous, it seems like, than in other parts of the developed world. I mean, when we're looking at those gun statistics, the other indicator to me of our high levels of anxiety are that we're literally number one in the world for highest rate of suicide. And the only country that's close is Montenegro. And then after you're done with Montenegro, it's, I mean... Uruguay is close is is about two thirds, and then Switzerland is in fourth place. Yeah, that's hold on. That's let's, less let, than half. Let's talk. Let's talk about that one for a second, right? <coughs> did, we didn't mention that, did we? That Switzerland no. is number five in the world for gun related suicides, mm-hmm. and that's something that gun rights activists haven't talked about at all. Mm-hmm. You know that, and and Canada is pretty high on the list too. Right, the developed countries have most. A lot of these are developed countries: Norway, France, Uruguay, uh, Austria, mm-hmm. yeah, Belgium, Costa Rica. Is, well, that's where depression is so. high. That's where depression is high, and anxiety is high. Why are we so anxious, and why are we so, so depressed, when we have a lot of money? Well, the money obviously isn't fixing all of our problems. So, 
what you're saying is that maybe the liberal solution of just throwing money at everything won't fix it. I don't think that's necessarily the liberal solution. That's you're right. That's not the complete lib. Okay, let me clear I this out like of the way. I'm a registered. Like that a registered... could be a libertarian solution as much as it could be a liberal solution. <laughs> okay, maybe more yeah. so. Yeah. Okay. I guess so. I'm a registered Democrat, so I just want to let that be known. Um, but like, what? Oh, uh, you're all about revealing your you're revealing your political voting habits in these episodes. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. Uh, how I'm a registered Democrat, and I really, but I really don't fit in with either party very well. Right. I'm, I'm very, I'm very bad at fitting neatly in the lines of either party. Right. Um, but it's but um. I forgot what I was about to say. So, you were talking about suicides, anxiety. Oh yeah, uh, throwing money at the problem. Uh, Andrew Como was talking about. I remember when he first got elected, he for one of the first things he did was wanted to cut some school funding in New York State, and everybody was like, was like cursing him out for it. All the teachers' unions and everything, you know, probably for good reason, but. He said, we keep throwing money at the problem and throwing money at the problem and throwing money at the problem, but we're, but nothing's getting better. Good for Cuomo. You know, and he's, he's partially right. You know, uh, he, he really is. Governor Cuomo is partially right. Money doesn't fix everything. And we need to admit that as, as, okay, I guess you're right. Both liberals and libertarians need to need to face this fact that money isn't going to solve everything. Of course, guns aren't going to solve anything. Everybody having an automatic rifle and being able to commit drone strikes and having tanks and and nuclear bombs isn't going to be able to solve everything either. Right. That's that's a major hyperbole. That's that's called rhetoric. Yeah. So, what we so the problems are, why are we so anxious? Why are we so depressed? Why are developed countries that are that have a lot at their disposal so depressed and angry? <coughs> why does France go on strike every five seconds? They're one of the best, biggest economies in the world. Well, I mean, I, I'm, yeah, I'm. I mean, this this would have to be a topic for another day. I mean, we, there's a lot to be covered there as far as how social alienation and social unrest affects countries politically. Yeah, and and that's the that's that's a big part of this. So we can talk about gun control versus gun rights, but there's it, it's a symptom of the problem. You know, it, it it really it really is. It's like somebody comes in. And they have all the signs point to point to uh, it could either be the flu or it could be just strep throat that's turned into rheumatic fever because it's been let go for like a month. Mm-hmm. Right. So but instead of getting a Petri dish, taking a swab in the back of the throat, making the person gag and almost throw up when the cotton hits the back of their throat. Um you instead decide, oh, well, they just have the flu. So you just give them ibuprofen. And everybody's so concerned about arguing whether we should be giving ibuprofen to this person with strep throat instead of trying to figure out why he has strep throat <coughs> and if he has strep throat and what strain it is and what antibiotics to prescribe. Mm-hmm. 
So that's the, and I think that's what we're doing here. Yeah. I, th I think the fact that this profile of person exists in our country, I'm not saying he doesn't exist in other countries, but he definitely doesn't exist to this extent in other countries. They have their own problems, but this kind of lone wolf, <clears throat> non-ideological, alienated person, killer, that's going postal is pretty much an American phenomenon. And it's very strange. It, I think it speaks to the fact that people do feel very alienated. They feel like they don't have a sense of community. They don't have people that care, care for them. They don't have a place where they belong. It's a big country, 320 million. It's easy to get lost in the shuffle. It's easy to, you know, feel angry or feel like you've been given the short end of the stick. There's a lot of, um, there's a and I, I don't know everything about what 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 was going on with him but there's a lot of maybe sense of identity growing among groups that that are fashioning themselves or are legitimately his mar, historically marginalized or oppressed groups but he's not part of that right <clears throat> he's part of the supposed dominant or uh, oppressive group or pressing group and he feels completely alienated, completely lost at sea, angry. I mean, Nicholas Cruz, he might be Latino, but he's white Latino. And, and you know, Latinos self-identify a lot of times as white. And, um, I mean, he's in a wealthy... I mean, the Broward County uh, Marjorie Douglas... What is it? Stoneman? Yeah, Stone Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. It's, it's a middle-class school. And... Um, I just, it's just hard, it's, it really, I think it speaks to, to me, it speaks to the soul, where the soul of the country is in a good amount. Like, I, I'm not saying that it's provoked from either side, this type of act, <clears throat> but it shows you the feelings of isolation and loneliness and anger and hate that can possess a person and cause him to do something like this um yeah so i am very much um anglican i come from a church of england uh denomination i am part of the anglican church of north america so i mean my personal opinion would be that it is humanity's nature to to act in very, I'd say, evil ways and bad ways. And, you know, it manifests itself in different places. But I think that's, you know, I'd say society is, like you said earlier, we're in a more postmodern world where morality is sort of becoming subjective to what the self believes in and, and of our experiences. And so as that happens, we have to find ways to express ourselves and the way that nicholas cruz decided to express himself and be true to who he was because he kept saying he wanted to be a school shooter apparently he was just being true to who he was and so what did he do he went and shot up a school because that's who he was to himself 
Now, like Phil said, we can we can talk about this all day, the the social impact and what's going on socially. So, um, next week we're gonna have another episode, and we are going to be discussing um, the issue of school aid and should teachers have guns and how much security should we have and we're going to learn hear from one of the best best math teachers in New York City his name is Ricardo Estrada and we're not just having him on the show because he's he's one of our good friends we're having him on the show because like I said he's one of the best math teachers right and he's really he's really smart he's a really logical man and It'll be great to have him on the show. So I hope you enjoyed and thank you for listening to Hitting the Median.